verse 1, I would just mention this. Our, our reading this morning follows immediately on the tale of, of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. You'll remember Jesus was speaking with Nicodemus about the importance of being born again, the importance of the new birth. And this morning's text following that is actually a lengthy conversation uh, that begins in verse 1 and goes all the way to verse 42. We are not going to rush through that conversation, though, as tempting as that may be. Instead, we're going to take our time and take it in pieces. Um, things in this passage are so rich. They're, they're so dense, even at times. I feel like we would be running past incredibly rich messages at a breakneck pace if we took the entire conversation for one Sunday. And so I don't want to do that. Instead, we're going to look at just the first 10 verses, the beginning of their interaction this morning between Jesus and this Samaritan woman. And so would you please stand for the reading of God's word beginning in John chapter 4, verse 1. Hear now the word of God. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you to give us eyes to see and hear the truth about you and the truth about ourselves. Most importantly, would you minister your gospel to us this morning? Send your spirit to make it so. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. The subject of evangelism can be uncomfortable, uh, an uncomfortable subject for Christians. Um, almost as uncomfortable as talking about money. Um, and I suspect in both cases, part of the reason is that we do feel just a bit insecure about how we're doing in both areas. Um, this is sort of borne out by the statistics, actually. Earlier this year, LifeWay Research uh, did a poll, and what they discovered was half of church-going Christians said they have not shared the gospel with someone in the last six months. Um, and they also found that if you're college-educated, you are less likely to share the gospel or even to pray for opportunities to share the gospel. And so you could imagine how the idea of even talking about evangelism can be uncomfortable for many people. Because in our minds, perhaps, when we hear about evangelism, we're hearing about just another area where we know we've fallen short, or where at least we feel like we've fallen short. Today's passage features Jesus practicing and modeling 
evangelism to somebody who is not a religious person. Today's passage features this remarkable conversation with the Samaritan woman, and it's remarkable for several reasons. But one of the most interesting is this. This is the longest recorded conversation Jesus has with anybody in the Bible. Because for John, it matters that he talked to this woman. It matters how he talked to this woman. It matters why he talked to this woman. And it matters what he said to her. And so for all these reasons, he gives 42 verses to Jesus' exchange with the Samaritan woman. But part of the reason I think it's especially important is that this conversation just followed his conversation with Nicodemus. And this is a conversation that is very unlike Nicodemus because this Samaritan woman is decidedly not a religious person. This is an evangelistic opportunity that John lets us hear the entirety of in a full way. So when we listen to Jesus speak to this woman today, we aren't just listening to a conversation. We are seeing Jesus in the process of evangelizing. And when we use the word evangelize, it's, it sounds like a fancy word. It just means to share the good news. It just means to tell the good news. It, it's like saying good newsing, except that doesn't sound like a very good word. So we say evangelizing instead. Now in the, in the church, there is an office of the church called evangelist. And in the PCA, our denomination, we have an actual office called evangelist. And we have very few people actually uh, ordained as evangelists because they have very special uh, rights and privileges that others don't have. For example, they have the ability that normally a presbytery has. They can ordain ruling elders and teaching elders if they live in a distant place. So when we talk about evangelizing, we're not talking today about the office of evangelist in the church. Instead, we're simply talking about the duty every Christian has and that we see Jesus modeling here for telling people that they run into an everyday life about who Jesus is and about where they can hear the good news. And that's church. And so I want to look just at the first 10 verses of Jesus's interaction with this woman. We'll be spending a few weeks seeing how he talks to her, what he says to her. But we can boil down what we see this morning to three aspects of sort of the narrative. We have the culture, we have the cup, and we have the conclusion. Um, I want to be bolder and braver about sharing the gospel with other people. You might think, well, if you're a preacher, you're, you're bold about sharing the gospel with other people. Well, you'd be surprised uh, about how much I need to grow in that area. Maybe you wouldn't be surprised, I don't know. Um, but this is something I want for myself as well. I want to be more bold about talking to everyday people in average conversations in everyday life. And I hope that you want the same thing for yourself. I hope that you want to be better at sharing the gospel with your neighbors, sharing the gospel with people you have short interactions with. And, and I think Jesus gives us some steps here that'll help us do better at that. I really do think that what, as, as I've prepared this message, at least, I've felt myself growing. And I hope as you hear it, you'll, hear, you'll think of areas where God could be changing you and showing you ways that you can be more bold and brave as well. First, in the passage, one of the things that stands out is our first point, which is the culture. The culture forms the background of this whole exchange. The culture is the reason why this woman is surprised by her interaction with Jesus. Um, as we, we saw last week, we saw how Jesus ministered to Nicodemus. And his conversation with this Samaritan woman is, is similar 
but it's also in many ways different. Think about Nicodemus. Think about what kind of a person Nicodemus is in comparison to this woman. Uh, Nicodemus was a powerful, educated, uh, influential man. He was called a ruler of the people. And think about this woman. She's just a simple Samaritan woman. All right, he was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. We'll talk in a minute about what makes that so unique. Uh, He belonged to the religious party of the Pharisees. This is a woman who has nothing to do with partisan religious politics. This guy is a well-educated person. And more than likely, this is a woman with little or no education. Very different backgrounds for these people. Think about how they met Jesus. Nicodemus sought out Jesus intentionally. He came to Jesus because he had questions for him. And this woman seems to have just incidentally run into Jesus in an everyday interaction. Nicodemus met Jesus at night. I think the majority of commentators understand Nicodemus sees Jesus at night because he feels he has a reputation to protect. Think about this woman. She came into the middle of the day because she had no reputation. And we will see that as well. These are all differences And yet there's this overriding truth that comes through loud and clear when you compare this woman to Nicodemus. Because if Nicodemus is an illustration of the truth that no one can rise so high as to be above needing salvation, this woman is an example of the truth that no one can sink too low. There are massive cultural issues that color the whole encounter here between Jesus and this woman. A lot of it is rooted in hundreds of years of history and complicated social interactions. And so what Jesus does is he comes, he sits down, and he meets this woman. He has this conversation. And, and it is tempting at this point for me to start looking at what he says to her, looking at the actual conversation. But to really appreciate what happens here, we need to understand the background. The division between the Jews and the Samaritans goes back almost a thousand years before this moment. There was a civil war in Israel, north split from south. You had had Judah in the south, and you had the rest of Israel in the north. In the south, they had a capital city. It was Jerusalem. And And in the north, they had Damascus as their capital. Almost as soon as the nation divided, you had Jeroboam, who was the king in the north, And he realized that in order to have a docile people that that stay loyal to the king, you needed to control not only the politics, but you needed to control religion. You needed to take hold of civil religion and you needed to have something that you could claim for yourself. And so he created new worship sites in the north so the people didn't have to go back to Judah to worship in Jerusalem. And very quickly, the north began to sort of co-opt the worship of the people of the land Around them, they built high places, places where they would worship the other gods. They started taking their cues from the culture around them. They mixed their worship with the culture's worship. The term we use for that is syncretism. They decide, well, you know, these other nations, they know a thing or two about worshiping. Maybe we should use some of their worship techniques, and they certainly do. And eventually what happens is the northern kingdom sinks lower and lower into idolatry. They turn farther and further from God. And so in 722 BC, they fall to the Assyrian Empire. And the northern kingdom is wiped out. And that created a void in the north without the government, without a kingship. 
And all the idol worshiping the people did, they began to mix. They began to mingle. The people who lived there began to worship not only the other gods, but also what they thought of as the local deity. They thought of it as Yahweh. And so they understood themselves to be worshipers of Yahweh at the same time they were worshiping the other deities as well. So you can imagine over time, as Jesus comes to sit down with this woman, think of all the baggage that Samaria brings to mind. This northern region, this place where people are thought to be half-breeds. Their knowledge of God was very compromised. Do you actually see one of the rabbis from the time period when Jesus lived? He said this about the Samaritans. This is very harsh for a Jewish person to say. He said, he that eats the bread of the Samaritans is like, the, like to one that eats the flesh of swine. Now, I happen to love eating the flesh of swine. I might have had some this morning, actually. But for a Jewish person, this is a very, very dark thing to say about another person. It almost doesn't get more filthy than this, as far as they're concerned. So they say, if you even share a piece of bread with a Samaritan, this is what you are. Imagine what he would say about Jesus being willing to drink from the same cup as this woman. So there are these historical divisions at play. There are theological divisions at play. There are cultural divisions at play. And the way they see it, there is just no reconciling these differences. And so what would happen? The Samaritans and Jews would just sort of pretend that the other didn't exist. Think about this. She came up to this well and she fully expected Jesus to ignore her. That is the social, social moray of the day. He's supposed to ignore her. What is he doing talking to her? And he not only talks to her, but he asks her for a drink of water. And what does he do? When he asks for that drink of water, he crosses that cultural barrier. And he crosses that racial barrier as well. Now what are they doing? They're going to share a drink together. It's earth-shaking. She can't even believe it. She, she's dumbfounded by this. There's this reputational element as well in this because the reality is in Jesus's day, a rabbi would suffer if he spoke publicly to a woman, even if she was his wife or his daughter. In public, a rabbi wasn't even supposed to speak to his own wife and daughter because it was thought, how is this woman worthy of speaking with you at all, even if she is your wife? So Jesus crosses that barrier there. And then Jesus takes another chance with this woman. If she gives him a drink, he'll use her cup. And they didn't even share utensils together. And now, was that in the Bible? No, of course not. It's not in the Bible. But it was an unspoken taboo. And there's something Jesus is modeling here. And I want you to see it very clearly. I want you to see it for your own life because we live around people who are not like us. You think every person in this area is just like you? I don't think so. Jesus is willing to cross any barrier necessary to reach the lost. He cared enough about this woman's soul that all of the risks that I just talked about, the historical risks, the theology risks, the, the cultural risks, the racial risks, the reputational risks, all of them as far as Jesus is concerned are absolutely worth it. He cared enough about this woman's soul that he risks all of these things. Uh, I don't have this in my notes, so it's always dangerous whenever I don't follow my notes. But uh, I had a pastor friend lived in Mississippi. 
a small Mississippi town, I won't say what town it is, uh, outside of our presbytery. And he told me about how in his town that he lived in where he was ministering, he, uh, the reality was his church was shrinking. His church was dying. It was a small church, maybe 15 people in it. He and his wife started asking the question, what can we possibly do to grow this church? They looked at the community around the church. The community was 90% black, 10% white. If you want to grow a church in a, in a community that is 90% black, 10% white, there's just something that has to happen. You've got to start inviting your neighbors. And if you're inviting your neighbors... You're inviting black folks to your church. Now, I don't think that that is, I don't think that that is a, uh, a risky thing to say here. I think we, we want to see people of all colors in our church. But what happened to my pastor friend was very disturbing. Because his wife was inviting people around town to the church, people in the church started spreading rumors that his wife was sleeping with the black men in the community and that that's what was happening in this church. You can guess you can't survive in a church for very long when your people talk about you that way. And he didn't. And that is in the last five years. We're not talking about the 1960s or the 1970s. We're talking about the 21st century. There are racial barriers to be crossed if we're going to minister to the people around us. And the reality is social ostracization can happen when you cross those lines. That's exactly the risk Jesus takes here. He speaks to a person he's not supposed to talk to. He, you know, your modern day equivalent is he invites her to church <laughs> is really what he does here. And the, the thing that Jesus knows is who cares if I get ostracized? This woman needs to know who I am. Jesus is willing to cross cultural barriers. Are we willing to cross cultural barriers? There's more to this. We'll see it in a moment. The second thing that we see in the way that Jesus ministers here is we see the cup. Now, he asks her for a cup of water, and, and we mentioned this already, but really the cup just is a stand-in. The cup is a stand-in for the reality that he just meets her in everyday life. He meets her in everyday life. And in the Middle Eastern culture, the customary way that, women got, that, that water was brought to houses was that the women's job was to fetch the water. And the way they fetched the water was they did it at the beginning of the day and they did it at the end of the day. Now, we know a thing or two about this because in Mississippi, there's a certain time of day when you mow your lawn and there's a certain time of day when you don't mow your lawn, right? Now, if you have no other choice, you can mow your lawn at three o'clock in the afternoon. It's the driest part of the day. There's probably not any moisture on the grass. Maybe mowing is great, but you're going to melt. You're going to melt and die in the sun. And so we know that you're supposed to really probably mow in the morning, but the grass is wet, or ideally in the evening, because the grass is dry and it's going to go gray. And we, so we know a thing or two. There are some things that you really don't want to do in the middle of the day. And one of those things for the Jewish people wasn't mowing their grass because they didn't have grass to mow. It's fetching the water. So you do it at the beginning of the day, you do it at the end of the day, and you stay out of the sun the best that you possibly can. And the only reason that you would get water in the middle of the day is if you were desperate or if you were avoiding people. And we will learn this as we look further into the passage. But this woman is, in fact, avoiding people. She has a reputation. Other women look at her with askance glances. They look askance at her. They treat her differently. We will find out why. 
But the reality is this woman has a reputation. And so because of that, she goes to the water when the other women are going to be around, giving her the painful looks that she knows she's going to get. The text is interesting. It, it tells us that Jesus left Judea, went to Galilee, but then it says that he had to pass through Samaria. Now, that's the way the passage says it. It says he had to pass through Samaria. Now, geographically speaking, this is not true. If you look at a map, Samaria is not on the way from Judea to Galilee. So the text, geographically speaking, is, is saying something not geographical. It's saying something about Jesus' motivation because, uh, well, Donald Gray Barnhouse says it like this. He says, uh, this is like someone driving from New York to San Francisco and saying they had to stop in Miami. You just don't, you don't have to. Uh, you don't have to. Uh, why would you? If you said you had to stop in Miami, why would you do that? Because you would be, because you would be implying I have something to do in Miami. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I have something to do in Miami, in Miami, in Samaria. And so there's an intentionality to Jesus here. He's stopping in the Samaritan territory on purpose. I think Jesus is intentional in making sure that people from Samaria hear the same message that the people from Judah hear. This is highly intentional. And I think there's a lesson to be drawn from that. As Christians, we should not expect opportunities to witness to always just fall into our lap. Now, sometimes they do. Sometimes opportunities to witness will just fall into your lap. Um, there are people out there, though, that need you to go to them. There are people out there that are just, they know they're not the church-going types. And maybe you have people in your life that you know that, that you just know they're not the church-going type. And there's no argument you can make to change their mind about that. They'll always think of them, themselves that way. Um, there are some people who would never ever set foot in a church or, or read the Bible because they just don't live in our religious world. We saw that in the last chapter. Some of the unwillingness of people to come is spiritual darkness. In fact, ultimately, that's the answer for all people unwilling to come. And that's true of all of our hearts to, to one degree or another. But there are just many people who don't think of themselves as church-going folks. They don't think they belong to a church. They can't imagine that they ever would. Do you know this, this sort of person, the sort of person who just feels like Christians are going to judge them if they come to church? Maybe it's true, right? Maybe, maybe it's true that we would judge them if they came to church. I hope it's not true, but it could be. Um, maybe it's just imagined, though. And I think most of the time it is just imagined. There's an imagined fear on the part of someone that they will be judged. And there are people who are afraid to enter the doors of a church because of that. We don't, if you've gone to church your whole life, it's really hard to imagine what it's like to be somebody who doesn't go to church. I, I can't imagine my life without church. I can't imagine getting up on a Sunday and not knowing what I'm going to do. Um, I, all my life I was raised in it. And if you were raised in it all your life, you maybe have trouble having that perspective as well. But there are some people, they get up every single Sunday and they think, this is my day. I can do what I want. And it would never occur to them to go to church. And if someone asked them, they would laugh. And I think it's hard for us sometimes to put ourselves in the headspace of somebody who just doesn't go. And there is an intentionality, though, on the part of Jesus because he reaches out to this woman. Because this woman is the type of person who would never go to Jerusalem. She would never go to the temple. She would never attend public worship. 
And yet Jesus says, this woman matters. She's important. I've got to talk to her. I have to go. I have to go to Samaria. I have to meet with these non-church-going type people. And it reminds us that people are not, who are not likely to come to us need to have us go to them. How does Jesus do that? How do we do that? Well, I think Jesus gives us a few ideas here. What's the right approach? How do we invite people to church? How does this even happen? The best evangelists I know, and I don't mean evangelists again in the technical sense. I just mean in the everyday Christian good at sharing the gospel kind of a sense. The best evangelists I know do two things. The first thing they do is they intentionally form relationships with people who aren't church people. They intentionally form relationships with people who aren't church people. Now, I don't know how you feel about that. Maybe you think, well, I run into people who aren't Christians all the time. But you may also be on the other end of things, uh, where you don't run into people who aren't churchgoers very often. Maybe the most, pe- most of the people you meet already have a church, already go to church. They're already godly people. Um, but the reality is there are some Christians who actually intentionally avoid having relationships and friendships with unbelievers. I remember in seminary having a conversation where on the one hand, um, myself and another person were saying, yeah, you need to have relationships with unbelievers. You need to have friendships even with unbelievers so they trust you and know that, that you're not just selling them a, ba- a bill of goods or something like that. They need to trust you. And this other person was very adamant. I remember he just said, what does oil have to do with water? What does heaven have to do with hell? What can God have to do with the devil? And then he said, look, Paul even says believers and unbelievers aren't supposed to be unequally yoked. And, and that was his argument. His argument was if you form friendships with unbelievers, you're unequally yoked with people. And yet I think, I think it's safe to say Paul was not saying that we should not have relationships with unbelievers. He wasn't even saying that we shouldn't have good relationships with unbelievers Paul was talking specifically about different uh, aspects of life where we would be uh, yoked together with people, such as business relationships. If you co-own a business with somebody, then you are yoked together with that person and you are stuck with the decisions they want to make just as much as they are stuck with you. And then the same thing goes for marriage. Life, uh, married, uh, and, and if one of you is an unbeliever, it can be an incredibly difficult situation. Situation, And so the picture Paul is painting for us is not that we shouldn't have relationships. He's saying that we should not be connected, committed, or in partnership with unbelievers because if they turn away from the Lord or if they do something that causes us to have to compromise, we're stuck with them. And he says we need to be free to walk away if we need to. If they veer off the biblical path, it's almost impossible when you're married or when you're business partners to still uh, stay with them. And all of this is to say, Paul is not telling us that we must live in a Christian ghetto where we're closed off from the rest of the world like Hasidic Jews or the Amish or like Mennonites do. We are meant to live in this world. We are meant to have relationships in this world. And so Jesus himself prays. He says to his father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. So his, his, the opposite of taking them out of the world is not being in the world. It's keep them from the evil one. That's his prayer for you and for me. His prayer for, to the Father was not, I pray that you would keep them from knowing unbelievers. 
He didn't pray to the Father. I, I pray that you would help for them not to run into somebody who's not a believer in everyday life. No, not at all. Have you ever considered that the biggest danger is not that you might meet an unbeliever? It's that they might not meet you. That's the biggest danger. Having a relationship with somebody is not like catching a cold. It's not like catching a disease. You don't catch sin by being around unbelievers. Jesus shared meals with Pharisees and tax collectors. He probably shared a laugh and a drink with them as well. And he didn't catch anything from them. Sin doesn't work that way. It's, it's a matter of the heart. Sin isn't a substance that can get on you, that needs to be washed off. It's a matter of the soul. Do you have relationships where the other person needs to hear the gospel? Or at the very least, they need an invitation from you to visit your church? Or is everybody in your life already a Christian? Is everybody in your life already a member of a church? In a community like ours, believe it or not, the majority of people in Pearl, Mississippi are not in church on Sunday morning. Now, they might have their membership on a roll somewhere, (laughs) and they may have had their membership on the rolls for years, maybe even decades. But in this community, we actually should not have any trouble finding people who are not church-going folks. And if that is a problem for us, it's a sign, I think, that we need to open up our social circles Um, Is running into unbelievers even something that you experience very often? I want you to hear what Rick Phillips says. Rick Phillips is a PCA minister, and uh, I think he says it very well. He says, many Christians are walled off from the world as the Jews of Jesus' time were. Like the Jews bypassing Samaria, we do not travel through the world, but only within the ghetto of our own substructure. If we interact with worldly people, we certainly don't think they have anything to offer us. Small wonder then that they are not open to what we have to offer them. We have a lot to learn from Jesus about this, but the best evangelists are people who intentionally pursue relationships with unbelievers. Like Jesus intentionally goes out of his way to go into Samaria. And by the way, it is very rare for someone to come to church where they don't know anybody. Um, That takes incredible social bravery to go to a church where you don't know anybody. Anybody. Most people come to church because someone they know and someone they trust has invited them to church. And this applies doubly to unbelievers who are very prone to be intimidated at the idea of going to church at all. Another thing, the second thing that good evangelists do is they look for opportunities to share the gospel wherever they find themselves in everyday life. So in my experience, uh, People do not respond well to sales pitches, right? They don't respond very well to sort of versed, uh, uh, memorized approaches to evangelism. I think gone are the days when um, a person would buy a vacuum door to door. I think we have entered a new phase. You can judge for yourself, but I think we are in a day and age where people do not like even having their door knocked on. Um, ask yourself this question. When someone knocks on your door, how do you feel? Now, if you're an introvert, you'd feel terrified every time someone knocks on the door. You, you just immediately freeze up and say, what could anyone possibly want with me? If you're an extrovert, you probably get really excited like a puppy every time, like my dog every time I, I come home. My dog is staying there. His tail is wagging. He can't wait. I'm just guessing, but I actually think most Americans have, are becoming introverts. They're in the process of becoming introverted, which means that when you go to their house with a sales pitch, they do not like it. 
and they do not want it. Now, that doesn't mean they don't need to hear what you have to say. But the reality is we may have to adjust how we do evangelism. We may have to adjust how we meet with others, how we tell others about Jesus. Um, People don't like feeling like they're a mark as if you're trying to fill a quota. But people at the same time are very open to spiritual conversations. And so the reality is when it feels natural, when you run into people in everyday life, those are the times, those are the places where people are very excited to talk about some of these things. And so part of this is just being out and about. It's about being in public. It's about being places where people are and visiting with people. And that's actually a trait of Jesus' conversation here because think about what's going on. This is an incidental everyday sort of a moment that they have. Jesus doesn't go to her door and knock. He meets her where she is. It's very natural. It makes sense for them to talk. The conversation kicks off because she sees something different about Jesus. He's a Jew, but he's willing to talk to her. He's a Jew, but he's not afraid to share a utensil even. So the thing that others notice about you could be very basic. Maybe, maybe they see a kindness in your demeanor. Maybe they see that you respect them. Maybe they, they see that you carry an air about you that says you're not better than them. You're not superior to them. And oftentimes that means spending time with people, being a good neighbor, being a good friend, showing kindness, demonstrating they can trust you, and that you do love them. So that when you invite them, they know that you mean it. And they know you're not just doing it just because, well, you have a list and you're supposed to mark them off of it. Now, there is a possibility there that when you hear this, you think, I'm going to make excuses for myself now. I have relationships with people that I've never shared the gospel with. I'm just buttering them up. Maybe (laughs) you just think eventually someday I'm going to tell them about Jesus. Well, look, if you are befriending someone for ages and ages and you keep telling yourself that eventually you're going to share the good news with them. If you've been friends with them for years, but you don't talk about God with them. If you don't bring up the gospel, if you don't bring up church at a certain point, you just need to admit that you're hiding. Are you hiding in any of your relationships? Are you, are you saying that you'll invite somebody, but you've just never done it? You've never crossed that line because you don't want to change the dynamics of the relationship. The need is still very real. The need is still very real. The approach that we have to take, we need to be very careful about. Christians are people who aren't supposed to be like everyone else. People will want to hear from you if you're friendly, if you're respectful, if they see something different in you, if they feel like you're treating them like a person instead of a mark or an opportunity to make a pitch. Jesus treats the Samaritan woman like a real person this morning, doesn't he? He meets her where she is in her everyday life because she isn't a religious person. You will not meet irreligious people at church. You have to go to them, and we see that. This morning, that's exactly what Jesus does. Third, this morning, though, we see the conclusion, which is really the gospel. We see it in verse 10. We see it in its very infant form in verse 10. Jesus answered her. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, we'll look more next week at this idea of living water. What does it say? What does it mean? But look at what Jesus does. He takes her question about why he is talking to her in the first place, and he tells her there is a much better question that you should be asking. 
One sign that you're on the right path is that you start asking the right questions. But even more, when you understand the gospel, you learn this, that, God, that, that salvation is a gift. What you need is a gift. What you need is something to be given to you. So Jesus tells the woman and he tells us what the living water is. He says, it is a gift from God. Even for a woman with a checkered past. Sort of woman all of us might have written off if we had first met her here. The sort of woman who no doubt knows how she looks. She knows how people whisper when she walks by. She knows how people treat her. And Jesus says, God will give this gift to you. He's looking at her. God will give this gift to you regardless of what your conscience tells you you deserve. Regardless of what the rich people around you make you feel like when they wag their heads as you walk by. Regardless of the fact that people won't give you the time of day. I want you to know, ma'am, the living water is a gift. It comes from God to us. We can't earn it. We can't deserve it. There's nothing in you that deserves to get this thing. And that's why even she can be offered this. That's why this is gospel. That's why this is good news. Because Jesus says, the gift is for you. All you had to do is ask. The Samaritan woman needed an encounter with Jesus. She didn't know how to worship. She didn't know about forgiveness. She didn't know about living water. She didn't know that salvation is a gift. And Jesus looks at her and he says, if you only knew that salvation is a gift that God freely gives, you would just ask for it. And the world around us out there is the exact same. They don't know how to worship. They don't know about forgiveness. They don't know about living water. And they don't know that salvation is a gift. And how will they know unless they are told? Let's pray. Our Father, forgive us for any cowardice. Forgive us for any ways that we failed to love your word and obey what you tell us. Would you persuade us in the depths of our heart that there is a world of people out there who truly need this message, that salvation is a gift, and that you offer it freely to those who ask. Would you give us courage in the relationships we already have? And would you give us courage in forming new friendships as well? Give us opportunities to invite others to hear your word and to tell others what you've done for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.